Hallelujah, indeed, what perfect songs, Grant, this morning to talk about our passage for today. Opening question for you guys to just ponder as we dive in, how much time have you really spent considering the miraculous things that happen in the Bible? Do they make you curious when you read it? Do you read right past it or do you slow down and go, wow, what exactly is taking place here? I'm talking about those moments where we get a glimpse of the spiritual realm that, that normally is outside of our, our physical view or events where we see the laws of nature being suspended. Does it make you curious? Are you not amazed by these things? Are you not drawn to them? How much is out there? Maybe you've asked this question more recently than ever. How many things are out there that we just don't understand, that we don't see on a regular basis, that on this side of eternity we only know a smidgen about, and when we get to the next life, we're going to know so much more. The transfiguration is a great example, right, of what I'm talking about this morning. When on what seems to be just an ordinary day, Jesus is with his disciples and he suddenly reveals a glimpse of his inner glory, right? And his body and his garments are, are transformed. They go through this blinding metamorphosis, the scripture says, right before the eyes of Peter, James, and John. They see this take place. And then, as if a portal had been opened to a different dimension, these historical figures from long since past are seen talking to Jesus, Moses and Elijah. How do you process that? That's a wild story. How about when Jesus appears to the disciples after the resurrection and he moves right through a solid locked door? However you understand a resurrected, glorified body to be like, it's impossible to ignore the fact of what's going on there. This, this glorified Jesus interacts with the physical world and in that form, his body has the apparent capability of being able to dematerialize, pass through a solid object, and rematerialize. That's a hard word to say. To rematerialize on the other side of the door. That's wild. Then there's the story of Philip in Acts chapter 8. Maybe the, the wildest of all, the one that causes me to ask so many questions. Philip is sharing the gospel with this Ethiopian eunuch, right? And he's somewhere between Jerusalem and Gaza. He's on the road to Gaza. And after he baptizes this man, Luke, who, by the way, is a first-rate historian. He doesn't make things up, right? Luke records this. He says, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. Snatched him away. It's the same word that we, we read about being raptured away. He's caught up, right? And the eunuch no longer saw him. He disappears in that moment, and Philip found himself at a place called Azotus. Seriously? <laughs> so one moment, he's ministering at a particular location, and in a flash, he's transported several miles away. We know where that location is on the map. As if he had traveled through some type of wormhole, or gone through some type of quantum tunnel. The types of things that scientists speculate about, wonder if they could be true, but certainly can't prove it this side of eternity. Hmm. Have you ever noticed in the stories of Jesus when he's teaching or healing and he says something controversial and the crowd turns against him, right? And they, they rise up. In fact, in Nazareth, they, they actually take him to a hill. They want to throw him off the edge of a cliff and he's able to slip away untouched 
And, and, and I guess un, unnoticed, even though he's the most important person, the most recognizable figure in the story, he slips away unnoticed. How does he do that? What does Paul mean when he says he was taken up to the third heaven? Right? To paradise, he says. Passing from the physical world into the spiritual realm to the very place where God dwells to hear inexpressible things. And those are just a few examples of, of miracles that should cause you to go, wow, and just pause and say, God, as we just sang, you are so beyond what we can even imagine. Your power is inexpressible, right? You have spirit beings, angels and demons moving through dimensions, sometimes taking on physical bodies. There's so much mystery in the Bible, right? And the more we live on this earth, we find out there is still so much mystery. Things that are happening in our physical world today. Things that science simply can't explain or figure out. So in our passage for this morning, we're going to look at another well-known gospel story that has two elements in it in the very same vein as the things I just described to you. God suspending the natural laws of physics, of space and time, in order to show you and I the glory of God's Son. In just a moment, we're going to read a declaration from John that goes like this. You ready? The disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea. Oh, okay, let's pray. Like that's a simple thing to fathom, right? He's walking on the water. And John writes this as an eyewitness to the event. He was in the boat when Jesus got in. Now, last Sunday, we discussed how Jesus was able to multiply bread and fish through the power of creation. Creation ex nihilo. He created, created this massive amount of physical matter out of thin air. That's pretty impressive. But what about walking on water? Some believe this is even more impressive considering the laws of physics that govern our world. And one of the ways that we know the enemies of the gospel hate this story is the lengths they will go to to try to explain it away by natural means. Don't you love it when people try to do that? You see a secular article. Some guy has written an article to try to explain how all these things in the Bible did happen, but only by materialistic natural means. So there must be a natural explanation, they, they say, to what John thinks he saw when Jesus was walking on the water. The most prominent theory out there, and this has been pushed for, for decades, it's called the sandbar explanation. I'm not kidding. The sandbar that when this storm came up, it's in the text, it was so strong that the currents shifted this massive amount of soil into the lake and it created a sandbar that Jesus was able to walk upon, giving the illusion that he was walking on the water. But we're going to see that the disciples were three or four miles into their journey. That puts them way, way out in the middle of the lake, way too far for a sandbar to be formed. And by the way, experts will tell you, sandbars do form over months and years, not hours. It's ridiculous, right? And if you think that sounds crazy, you'll love this one. Back in 2006, this is not a joke, ABC News published an article titled, Did Jesus Walk on Water or Ice? <laughs> you can Google this. It's, it's still up. I, just, I checked it yesterday. Researchers at Florida State University said that they're confident that given the right weather conditions, large patches of ice could form in the Sea of Galilee. And the study suggested that temperatures did, in fact, drop to 25 degrees Fahrenheit sometime during the period of 1,500 to 2,500 years ago. That's a 
pretty big time period, right? But sometime that, and so they're, gonna, they're literally going to say that within that time, that's exactly when Jesus was at the Sea of Galilee, that he was able to walk across an ice flow, leaping from patch of ice to patch of ice and giving the illusion of walking on the water. Not kidding. This was a real thing. Now, I've been in a boat on the Sea of Galilee in, in early January when it is extremely cold. And the idea that there's ice there is ridiculous. And by the way, the average temperature, this remember, this is the Passover season, right? The average temperature in Galilee in April during Passover season, 74 degrees. Okay, sometimes up to 99. It gets warm in the Galilee. Wow. Oh, and by the way, had it been below freezing, 25 degrees Fahrenheit, do you think you would have found 20,000 people gathering outdoors <laughs> to hear Jesus teach and to eat a meal of fish and bread? In the freezing weather, of course not. But let me repeat what I shared last Sunday. If you believe John 1 is true about who Jesus is, then it's not hard to believe what we read in John 6 when we read about these miracles. If Jesus is God the Son, if he is the eternal word who was with God in the beginning and through whom all things were created, then it's not any great wonder that he's capable of producing fish and bread or that he's capable of transcending the laws of physics to walk on a lake. The fact is, these miracles are completely consistent with who John says Jesus is, it's consistent with who God the Father says he is, and it's consistent with who Jesus himself claims to be. So here in chapter six, Jesus is simply doing what we would expect him to do. He's doing the very works of God. Amen? Amen. Grab your Bibles. Let's look at this story. We're in John 6. If you're not there already, we're going to back up to verse 14. We'll start there. So from the beginning, we've been walking through the the seven great signs that John, the gospel writer, gives us that that prove that Jesus is God the Son, that he's Israel's Messiah. And so last week, we saw the fourth sign, the feeding of the 5,000. This morning, we get the fifth sign. By the way, these messages are going to overlap. So if you're If you're new with us, you want to make sure that you are going to our YouTube page. If you miss a sermon, listen to it. Because they're going to always, especially this chapter, they're going to keep overlapping. So the more you can stay up with it, because I can't explain the context every single week, right? Okay, so the more you're able to stay up with it, the better you're going to understand what's going on here. So if you didn't listen to last Sunday's, go to our YouTube page. If you don't know where that is, just reach out to Tanny or somebody and they can direct you. Okay, are we all there? Jesus has just multiplied five barley loaves and two fish into enough food to fully satisfy, that's the key, fully satisfy 20,000 men, women, and children, somewhere around that number, and still have 12 to-go boxes, right? Leftovers. How many of you guys always get a to-go box after you eat at a restaurant? I know, my wife, every single time, okay? (laughs) Loves this story, right? Jesus, 12 leftover boxes. It's fantastic. And as the people in the crowd that day begin to grasp what's just happened, they've eaten up, and then all of a sudden they look, you get a picture, they look up and they go, how did that happen? I mean, look around, we've all eaten. And they begin to realize what's happened here. They, they understand this is clearly a sign from God, right? And that the man responsible for this meal has to be, has to be the prophet from long ago, right? The one promised in the Torah to be a prophet like Moses, right? From Deuteronomy 18, we, we looked at that last week. And and it says right there in verse 14, therefore when the people saw the sign, that's John's favorite word, the sign, which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. 
Okay, so they rightly understood who Jesus was in that moment. That's a big deal. Now, put yourself in their sandals for a moment. If you had been there that day, you'd seen all of this take place, you'd eaten your fill of food, and you understood this is the prophet. I mean, we've been waiting for how many centuries now for him to arrive? I think he's here. This is the guy. What would you do next? Again, we got to try to put on ancient sandals. If you're in that crowd, what do you do now? I wrote down a couple of key questions that I would have been asking at that point. Number one, okay, prophet, why have you come to this place at this moment? I want to know the answer to that question. What's the meaning of this sign that you've just done here? What, what, what are you communicating? Tell us what we need to hear to know, to know God more fully. And what is God's will for us now? Those are the things I would want to know. In other words, I'd be asking all kinds of, now again, I'm, I've got the, I get to look back at the story. It's really easy for me, right? I'm not sure I would have done this any better than the crowd. But in hindsight, I can say, look, I'd have been asking some really sober spiritual questions about what just took place. But unfortunately, the, the people in the crowd that day, they were not thinking in spiritual terms. Remember, it's the heat of the Passover season, right? It's the patriotic season of the year. They're thinking with nationalism in mind, with zeal and anger about the Roman oppression in their hearts. They're thinking about one thing. They're thinking about power and revolution in this moment. If God was with them, as in the days of the Maccabees, you can almost see him talking about it. Look, if God is with us, like he was when Judas Maccabee was on the scene, and if we can harness the power that this Jesus has, then we can restore the kingdom. I mean, the, the possibilities are unlimited here. That's not what Jesus came to communicate, right? How blind they were, how selfish they were. The light had dawned on them on that day in Bethsaida, and they missed it. But of course, none of that comes as a surprise to Jesus because he always knows what's in the hearts of men. He knows what motivates them. That's why we have verse 15. We get the insight here. John says, Jesus aware that they intended now to come and take him by force, to make him king. In other words, we're going to harness your power, dude, because we've seen it, and now we're going to go change the world. We're going to go throw off this Roman oppression. Jesus knows this, so what does he do? He says, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Wow. And so he rejects these fleshly desires of this rabble. And no doubt he's tired from the day. Jesus knows, here's what I need. I need time alone with my father. Matthew and Mark both tell us that Jesus then sent the multitudes away. He broke up the party because he needed to go and pray. Jesus needed to go up the mountain and pray. And then John continues in verse 16 and 17. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They were on the mountain. They went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum from where they came, right? We covered it last week. To go back home. So it's late in the afternoon. The sun is dropping in the sky. It's been a long day. They've been serving all these meals. Can you imagine how tired you would have been? And this crowd's gotten really salty now, right? They're talking about revolution. And according to Matthew and Mark, the disciples, they didn't just meander down to the shoreline like, oh, you know, guys, maybe we should go home. That's not what happened. They say, now this is really an important detail. Matthew and Mark talk about Jesus made the disciples get on that boat. He made them. This is what Matthew 14, says. Immediately afterwards, that's immediately after the meal was over, listen to this, Jesus compelled the disciples to get into the boat and to go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. 
He compelled them. That verb for compel is very strong. Anakatsu. It's a range of meaning includes this idea of using authority and forcing somebody to do something. Jesus is, here's what's going on. Jesus orders his guys, get on the boat and go back home. It's an order. And as I shared last Sunday, I think there's a sense here that Jesus is concerned about his disciples. He wants to separate them from this revolutionary spirit that the crowd has. Remember the 5,000 men? That's a small militia. And, and he doesn't want his guys getting wrapped up in that. He doesn't want his guys being recruited or forced to lead in this militia. So he's like, guys, right now, get on the boat, go back home. Jesus has a plan here, right? So, good news. The 12 obey, right? I mean, you gotta, be, you gotta be thankful for small things, right? They don't talk back. They obey Jesus. They get in the boat and they set off for the western shore of the lake. Verse 17 says, it had already become dark. Again, Jesus stays behind to be alone and to pray. And I don't know, maybe one of the 12 was like, hey guys, I know we're getting in the boat. Jesus said to do that. How's he gonna get home? I don't know. I mean, it's not recorded for us, but I got to think that somebody said, wait, hold on. (laughs) How's Jesus going to get home? Now, being on the Sea of Galilee is nothing new for these guys, even in the dark, right? Some of these guys were fishermen. They made their living on the water. They certainly understood the weather. They understood how storms on the Sea of Galilee can come very quickly. I'm sure they had a very healthy respect and fear for their surroundings. But Keep this in mind. We covered this last week. Something happened between chapter 5 and chapter 6 in the Gospel of John. Remember the synoptics tell us that just recently they had all been on the lake together and a storm came up that was so bad that they all felt like they were going to perish. Now for fishermen to panic like that, it must have been pretty bad until Jesus, what, he wakes up and he calms the storm. So they just had that experience. Now put put on their sandals again. You're now getting back into the boat. What's going through their minds? As they leave Bethsaida and they begin to cross the lake, what is going through their minds? It's a five-mile row back to Capernaum. Okay, get those arms ready. Here we go. Is there fear? Is there apprehension? Did some of them go, you know, guys, I really wish Jesus was with us. I mean, I know he wants to stay and pray, but I wish Jesus were in the boat with us. I would feel much better. How many guys would have thought that? Okay, me too. Consider this too. In light of what just happened that day, what, what do you think the spirit was in that boat? I have no doubt that there was a very lively conversation in that boat after that day, after seeing that miracle, right? Don't you wish you had a transcript of every little conversation? My hope is I've literally asked the Lord, when I get to heaven, can I get recordings of all of those things? Because it would be so interesting to be a fly in that boat, right? And to hear what's going on. I think it's reasonable to believe that the disciples had mixed feelings about the day when they got on that boat. Here's what I mean. On the one hand, they had seen Jesus do an astonishing miracle. And he allowed them to participate in it, right? To, to, To feed the multitude. So that had to be encouraging. But on the other hand, the ending of it all must have confused them like crazy. Maybe even disappointed them to some extent. Why had Jesus demanded that we get back in the boat? Why why did he order us back in the boat? The energy of the crowd was just starting to to pick up, and then he says, go get in the boat, right? Because we all think physically, right? We get excited. When the energy of the crowd is growing, we're like, yeah, harnessing the power, right? We all feel this way, 
And they're like, well, things were just getting interesting. You know, and now we got sent back to the boat. Hmm. So why does Jesus respond to the crowd as he did? I mean, they had to be talking about that. They were saying that he's the new Moses. Isn't that the whole purpose of this thing? I mean, remember, think about these guys. They're part of this ministry. They have given up everything for Jesus, right? Jobs, families, livelihoods, they've left. And, and, and now the people go, you're the prophet that Moses promised, and yet Jesus walks away. I mean, they literally were calling you a king, Jesus. Isn't the whole purpose of what we're, you just sent us out to proclaim that the kingdom of God was at hand. The people say you're a king, and you go, no. You walk away from that. And then you put us on a boat. I gotta guess they're pretty confused at this point. This, Jesus, we've given up everything for you. We were hoping in this, in this very thing, and now you seem to be rejecting it. We don't get it. Hmm. Rather than capitalizing on the mood, this is what we would have done, right, as human beings. Capitalize on the mood, the growing crowd. Remember, these people are all gonna go off to Jerusalem soon. What if they take all that energy about who Jesus is and they take it to Jerusalem and everything grows and pretty soon we've got this massive ministry, right? We always think in terms of big. Why not do that? But he resisted it all. He dispersed the people. Then he went up on the mountain by himself. Of all things, that has to be the worst human thing that you could do is to, is to just go off alone, just blow these people off. I'm guessing they sat in the boat and they were like, what's going on? Is this really the plan? And then it gets much, much worse, right? In the midst of processing all that, conditions on the lake turn really ugly really fast. Verse 18. In addition, the sea began getting rough because a strong wind was blowing. So they're already frustrated and now things are getting rough, right? The specific language for Matthew goes this way. Matthew says, they were a long distance from the land and being battered by the waves for the wind was contrary. So they're, they're rowing into the wind and the current is strong. Mark says they were in the middle of the sea and straining at the oars for the wind was against them. So these guys are fighting the elements, man, and it is slow going. That just adds to the frustration, right? Now we know that this part of the narrative aligns with truth because we know the topography of this area. We know the climate conditions around the Sea of Galilee. It sits in the lower portion of what we call the Jordan Rift Valley. It's got a very specific topography. The lake sits below sea, several hundred feet below sea level, but the mountains that surround it are several feet, hundred feet above sea level. And that creates like a cup-like depression. This lake sitting in like a cup with all these mountains that go around it. So what happens is late in the afternoon as the air cools, it blows in from the south and from the east and it comes down those mountains, sometimes like up in the Golan Heights, really sharp distance down onto the lake and it meets the warmer air that's rising from the surface and it creates all kinds of violent storms. It creates winds, not so much rain really, but, but high winds that make the water very, very choppy and create very strong currents. And if you're trying to row into one of those currents, you're in for a rough time. It's gonna be pretty chaotic. Now, I posted some pictures on the band app. Anybody see them? If you have your phone and you wanna open band uh, or share it with somebody around you, I I, I put some pictures up there just because photos help, right? To, To set the mood. By the way, I know you guys, you were reading your lyrics again this week. 
by next week, Lord willing, Alex is looking at me, Lord willing, we're gonna have our projection together so you can actually raise your eyes and, and sing, which is gonna be great, and I can have pictures and maps and timelines and all kinds of fun things up there, but for today, you're gonna have to look at your little phones. So I posted some photos of my last trip to Israel, which was two years ago, right before COVID, and so I think there's, what, four or five pictures there? So a couple things to look at. In that first picture, I'm on the top of what's called Mount Arbel, which is on the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. So you, and I give you that picture just so you can see how tall the mountains are related to where the lake is below, okay? Beautiful views from Mount Arbel. How many of you guys have been to Mount Arbel? Okay, a few of you guys. Beautiful, right? The second picture is just so you can see what the boat was like that I was in. That's a, the type of boat you get in on the Sea of Galilee. And then a couple of views of the lake. Now, two years ago, uh, we got on that boat right around 5.30 p.m. So the timing was perfect in terms of this story in John 6. The sun was beginning to set, and by the time we got to En Gev, which was across the other side of the lake, it was dark. Now let me tell you, when you're on the Sea of Galilee, it's dark, really. Even though we have electrical lights, right, and we can see the shoreline, it's dark out there, okay? But you can see, see the picture, see the mountains that are all around the Sea of Galilee? Really quite beautiful. But listen, that water gets choppy. I remember on that trip, we were, it was cold. It was, or it was January, so it was cold. I had like three layers on, and that, we were hitting those, those waves, and that water, it didn't matter where you were in the boat, the water, the spray was coming up over those pretty good-sized boats and getting all of us soaked. It was miserable. So go to Israel. Anyway. <laughs> we we tried, I, I will not go back in January. It was cold. We prefer April. Anyway. Anyway, so let that sort of uh, sink in as, as an example here. All right, look at verse 19 now. What's happening on the lake? Then when they had rowed about 25 or 30 stadia, which is about three or four miles, okay, three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Understatement. <laughs> but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid, so they were willing, or really a better translation, they were glad to take him into the boat. Duh. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Okay, so <laughs> let's pray. So that's, that's it. That's John's entire description of this, this amazing miracle. Now, you know, he doesn't talk about Peter getting out of the boat, so we're not going to talk about it this morning, but there's a lot of details that he doesn't give us it's a very simple account. And the reason is, and you got to come back, spoiler alert, come back next week. Both of these miracles are, are, are given to us as a, as a setting for the teaching that's to, to come in the next discourse that Jesus has. We call it the bread of life discourse. So John's purpose, again, is not to repeat what Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already done. He is giving you a very condensed version of this story because it sets up Jesus' teaching that's to come. Does that make sense? Okay, good. So, let, let me try to fill in the story just a wee bit using Matthew and Mark. When you take the three accounts into consideration, the picture you get is that this boat should be sort of hugging the shoreline from Bethsaida back to Capernaum. But because of the currents, they've been pushed out into the middle of the lake. So they've gone, they've gone three or four miles, but they haven't made a whole lot of progress because they keep drifting into the center of the lake. They're straining at the oars. No doubt they're taking turns. You can see, like, I'm exhausted. My arms are like rubber. We're just going to keep taking turns rowing, but they're not making the progress they need to make to get to the shore. 
And Matthew and Mark tell us that by the time Jesus comes to them, he says it's the fourth watch of the night. That's 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So get this now. They've been rowing for eight, nine, maybe even ten hours at this point, and they're not even close to home. This is miserable, right? They're frustrated. They're frustrated by the events of the day. They're now exhausted. I'm sure they're wet. I'm sure they're cold. I'm guessing they're like, it's been ages since we had some fish and bread to eat. We're starving, right? And on top of all the physical challenges they're experiencing, here's my question. Were they frustrated with Jesus in that moment? How many of you guys, man, you walk through life and you're like, I am frustrated with the way God is doing this. I mean, seriously, all the trials, Lord, what's going on? I'm frustrated. I'm sure that that they were struggling at this point. They're still perplexed by how the day had ended, why they were forced into the boat. And here they are now. They're doing exactly what Jesus said to do, right? And it's not working out. How many of you thought of that before? You're like, I think I'm in the will of God. I think I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but things are not working out. Lord, what's happening Am I doing something wrong here? You told us to get in the boat. You told us to go back and look where we are. And where are you, by the way, Jesus? If you'd been in the boat, we'd have been out of this jam by now. But you're not here with us. I'm cold. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I just want to get home and get in my bed. All these things, come on, right? They're human beings. All of these things would have been happening. I'm I'm guessing that boat was a grumble machine, man. I mean, everybody's grumbling. But here's one of the key things. Mark tells us this. This is Mark 6.48. Mark says, seeing them, straining at the oars, Jesus came to them. Now, that's interesting. Uh, From the mountain, there's no way Jesus could have seen with his human eyes, seen that, that, that little boat in the middle of that big lake in the dark, in the middle of the night. He couldn't have seen it with his human eyes, but we've already seen over and over again that Jesus has this divine omniscience to see people. Remember, he saw Nathaniel under the tree. He sees the hearts of human beings. So when it's necessary, Jesus, he sees, right? So he's up on the mountain. He knows exactly what's going on with his friends down there in the lake. He knows they're being tossed around. He even knows they're frustrated. He knows they're grumbling, right? Let that sink in. In your life, the shepherd always has his eyes on the flock. Even when the flock is struggling to realize it, the shepherd is always watching. And now they need a divine help. And so Jesus now does the impossible. He comes to them on the lake. Now try to imagine what the sight would have looked like. Again, put yourself in the boat. Think about this. Again, it would have been really dark out there on the water, darker than you and I are even used to because we're so used to having lights everywhere. Super dark. It would have been dark skies and dark water, probably even hard to make out the shoreline, right? They're, they're just going on instincts and their experience of trying to find their way back to Capernaum. But here's the saving grace. We know that it's near Passover. It's sometime in April, and that means that the moon would have been nearly full at this time. So depending upon the cloud cover, there probably would have been some moonlight shining down and illuminating the white caps on the water. Have you ever been in a storm where you just see the white of the, of the waves going? The water's dark, but you can see those white caps, Right? So I, I picture the moonlight is, is showing that and their vision is still clouded because they're, they're, the boat is hitting the waves and the spray's coming up over and they're getting wet. And I mean, it's really a very chaotic scene. And in the midst of that, 
with just limited vision, the moonlight's bouncing off the waves. Can you picture it? Suddenly you detect some movement off to the side. <laughs> what could that be, right? It's something you can't comprehend. It just doesn't compute. It, it looks like a human figure out there among the waves. And it's coming towards the boat. And they're terrified, right? Matthew, Mark, tell us why. They say that in Greek, they thought they saw a phantasma. They thought it was a phantom or a ghost on the water. And I'll be honest with you, I probably would have thought the same thing, right? At first glance, you're like, because your mind can't possibly comprehend that that's a, a human being on the water. So you're like, this is a ghost. And they, they screamed out in terror. Now, would you have reacted any better? Right? How many of you guys would have calmly said, guys, hold on. That's Jesus. And I know he's suspending the laws of gravity and physics, but he's on his way to help us. <laughs> Nobody would have done that. We'd have all been screaming like a bunch of 10-year-olds at a slumber party, right? Just, ah! You've been to those parties. But then Jesus, look in verse 20, he says to them, so he, he must have drawn close enough to the boat to hear. He says, it's I, don't be afraid. And that, that too tells us something, that Jesus in that moment has to identify himself to his friends. Now, is that because the, their vision is being clouded by the storm and the, and the water? Or is it because Jesus is operating in that moment in some form or dimension that they can't possibly recognize? I don't know for sure. All I know is they're very, very glad to welcome him into the boat. Amen? But then it gets even more mysterious, right? It'd be so nice if we could just, okay, end of the story. Look at the end of verse 21. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Boom, at the shore once Jesus got in the boat. So the guys have been rowing for eight or ten hours. They're in the middle of the lake. They're so far off their target. But instantly once Jesus is in the boat, they're at the shoreline. How do you explain that? How do you explain that? Now, Mark does tell us that when Jesus came aboard, the wind stopped, so you could reason physically that, okay, good, the, the current stopped and the, and the wave stopped, and so they could easily row in. But the problem is, John uses this word immediately. He doesn't say quickly or, hey, within 30 minutes they got to the shore. Six times in his gospel, Jesus, or John uses the word immediately, and in every single case, he means what? Immediately. Instantly. So I read into this a second miracle that takes place here. Jesus bending time and space. Bending time and space, like, like Philip being transported, right, from one place to another. Wow. And in the blink of an eye, he brings his disciples safely to the shore. Okay. I mean, if you got an explanation for this, I'm all ears, right? But this is wild stuff. And, and it, to me, this is so exciting. It, 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 I mean, you can be puzzled by this. You can, you can be excited by this. I, I'm excited by this. Like, God is able to do these things that we can't even fathom. Man. So, as, as we're processing through this, there's really two important things that we draw out of this story, and they're very different things. One of them is uniquely Jewish, and I'm going to talk about that in a second, and the other is more broader for us Gentiles, 2,000 years later, a little, a little more obvious for us to see, but let me walk you through the first one 
first. In so many ways, what Jesus does in the this, in this story speaks directly to his Jewish followers who knew the Torah better than you and I, right? It just happens to be a little more veiled to Gentiles like us, right? But I want you to notice, going back to verse 15, Jesus does reject the idea of becoming king. Does he reject the idea of being the prophet? He does not. He says, I'm not going to be your king, but I'm not going to argue with the fact that you've called me the prophet that Moses promised in the Torah. And so he doesn't resist that, right? And when you look closer at the story, you then begin to see, well, there's all kinds of elements here that are symbolically tied to both Moses and to the Exodus. I know I touched briefly on this last Sunday, but bear with me as I elaborate all the ways. First of all, remember, back in the days of Moses, there were all these signs and wonders in Egypt that God did, right? And now in our story here, we see a sign and a wonder from Jesus and multiplying the loaves and the fish, right? Consider then the provision of food, right? Oh, and by the way, it's the Passover time, right? The Passover, which is literally the most important story in Moses' life, right? The deliverance of God's people from Egypt. And what's at the center of the Passover? The slaughtered lamb, right? And then consider the provision of food in the wilderness. Manna from heaven in the days of Moses, barley loaves from Jesus. Remember, do you remember in the story, I think it's Exodus 16, Moses says, but Lord, there's, not a, there's no way you can provide this much food for all the people. And what does Philip say when he sees the crowd? We don't have enough money to feed all the people. Very similar language there. According to Mark, Jesus organized the people into 50s and 100s so he could distribute the food. Guess what Moses did in the wilderness? The same thing, he organized the people in the wilderness. Jesus multiplies the food and feeds the people with, quote, as much as they wanted. Just as God had provided manna from heaven, quote, as much as any man could eat, Exodus 16, 21. Then notice how Jesus intentionally builds on the parallel with Moses. He ascends back up the mountain alone with God, just as Moses had gone up on the mountain alone to receive the law at Mount Sinai. Then think about the churning waters of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Is that not an allusion to the chaos of the Red Sea at the time of the Exodus? You can almost picture Jesus walking on the water as if it's what? Dry land. He's able to just walk on the water like it's dry land and leading his disciples safely through the waters. Think about Moses crossing the Red Sea on dry land, leading the ancient Hebrews to safety as the Egyptian army is coming from behind. Do you remember how the Hebrews cried out to the Lord? They're standing at the edge of the Red Sea. They know that the Egyptian army is coming and they, they cry out in fear and Moses says, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord which he will perform for you today. And Jesus draws near the boat and he says, don't fear, it's I, the Lord. I'm here to save you. All these parallels, right? All of these parallels. And I think in Jesus planning this particular miracle, by the way, Jesus is never the victim of circumstances, is he? Did he not plan this from beginning to end? Of course he did. Of course he did. He's intentionally drawing the attention of his disciples to this incredibly important Jewish history. He is the prophet that was promised in Deuteronomy 18 that Moses said would come. Moses said, when he comes, you better listen to him. So Jesus draws all of these parallels. 
Also, he draws all kinds of parallels to other Old Testament scriptures. Think about this. In ancient times, the sea was the ultimate force of nature. Everybody feared the sea in ancient times. By the way, I still do. (laughs) Anybody else? I don't like going on boats. The water's dark. There's critters down there. I don't know what they are. I don't want any part of it. (laughs) Drives my wife crazy. She loves boats. I'm like, "Mm -mm. mm-mm, mm-mm. But in the ancient world, everybody feared it because the darkness, the darkness of the water, what does the darkness represent in Scripture? Evil, right? The storms and the waves on the sea symbolize chaos and disorder. In the days of Noah, what did God use in his judgment against humanity? The waters. In Daniel, God gives his prophet a vision where the four winds of heaven are stirring up what? The great sea. What comes out of the sea? The four great beasts. The sea is a scary place. These are very ominous images. Think about how the psalmist writes this. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. And then we have the story of Jonah, right? The sea is the watery grave of Jonah until God spares his life. It says, you threw me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The deep flowed all around me. So the sea's a fearful place, but here's the thing. There's one who has power over the sea. That's the big idea here. Every ancient Jew understood that one of the things that marked out Yahweh was his mastery and power over the seas. This is very common in Jewish understanding. Job 9.8 says, Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? The psalmist says in Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The Lord thunders over the mighty water. In Psalm 89, you rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you, Yahweh, still them. So here's the point of all this. When Jesus walked on the water in that darkness of that early morning, he walked in a place where only God can walk. The disciples recognized it. That's only a place that God can walk. He walked only where God has sovereign control and power over the waves, standing above the sea as one who has authority over it. All these things would have resonated with these 12 Jewish men. They understood more about who Jesus was through this event. Maybe more than any other miracle, this one stands out to the 12. Now, what do we see in this, okay? Because... We, we can look at that, and it's still a little bit hard for us, but what can we see more broadly? Well, remember, this was a private miracle that Jesus did here, right? Remember, the feeding of the 5,000, very public, but this is a private one, meaning it was meant for the disciples' eyes, and that means, by extension, it's meant for our eyes. What do we learn? Things like faith and patience, and most of all, worship. Worship. So, let me come back to something I hinted at last Sunday, but I think it deserves a little bit more attention. With these two miracles, what they show us, one of the things they show us is how easy it is for us to slip into a prosperity gospel mindset. So easy. Now, we'd never admit that out loud. Not one person here would go, yeah, I'm all for the prosperity gospel. But if we're not careful, and more importantly, if we're not growing spiritually, if we're not abiding in the vine, it becomes very simple to fall into this pattern. So I've come to Jesus now. And I'm participating in the life of his church. And the assumption is that because of that, my life is going to improve, right? That's natural. I've come to Jesus. He's going to make everything okay. If I worship him, if I check all the right boxes, 
He's going to straighten out my issues, and ultimately he's going to bless me and my family. That is the thinking of so many churchgoers in America. In fact, that's why they're there. They're there for that very reason, because they think that Jesus serves their needs, that that's the core of the gospel is Jesus is here to help me. And while God may choose to do that, he may choose to bless you or I, when we adopt a quid pro quo relationship where we're using Jesus for our own personal gain, we're in trouble. That's what was going on in Bethsaida in John chapter six. The folks in that crowd, they ate their fill of bread and fish and they were so pleased to receive this gift from Jesus, but then they want more. How else can this man serve our needs? They want him for their own purposes. Let him be our king. Let him lead this revolution. He's going to pave the way to a brighter future for all of us. Freedom and food and prosperity and comfort. He is the giver of all things. It's the prosperity gospel. And in all that, no thought whatsoever of spiritual things, right? No thought of, well, if he can do these things, we ought to just fall on our knees and worship this guy. No thought of that whatsoever. No thought of serving this king, only thoughts of harnessing his power for their ends. So what happens when you and I come to Christ, right? And we start participating in the life of the church, but things don't get better. In fact, not only do they not get better, they get worse. How many of you guys have experienced that? This happened to me, man. I got saved and everything went to pot. I'm like, I... Is this what I signed up for? Anybody else? Like, things got harder, not easier. That's, that's when the test comes, right? In your heart, you wanted to harness Jesus' power. You wanted to make him your servant rather than the other way around. That's so common. I know a, a pastor, he tells me this, told me this story. He said there was a woman who had moved to his town because she'd gotten a new job in the area. She, she bounded into church on a Sunday morning so excited. God led me to this town. And she was like, I'm gonna get involved in this church. And she signed up for everything and she was so excited. And then three months later, she got fired. And she came to the pastor and she said, I don't, I don't understand. I was doing all the right things. He told me to get in the boat and start rowing and everything got worse. Now, literally said, God has left me hanging out to dry. He moved me here, and now he's left me. And of course, the pastor was like, slow down, deep breath, right? Tried to explain to her what was really going on, but she had no thought of seeing that situation as a trial that would bring about growth in her life. None. No concept of submitting to the Lord or worshiping him in spite of her difficulties or circumstances. She just grew angry and bitter she and her family left the church. Bottom line, she just had a wrong idea about who Jesus is. She wanted to use him for her personal gain, but he was not cooperating. That's how easy it is to slip into this. She needed to figure out who the Lord really was and who the servant was because she had it all reversed. No, he serves me. It's not the way it works. So here are the disciples now. They go from this mountaintop experience of seeing this miracle take place all the way down to the valley now of being alone in this boat. Jesus has left the crowds, right? He's ordered them to sail back home. This whole Jesus thing is not working out in that moment. But if John could walk through that door this morning and you were able to interview him and say, John, tell us about that night. Here's what I think he would say. He'd have said, man, being on that lake without Jesus was brutal. One of the worst nights of my life. But here's the thing, 
If he hadn't sent us into that situation, we would never have seen his glory and power like we did. If he hadn't intentionally sent us into that situation, onto that lake, into that wind, with all of those waves, we wouldn't have been witness to that type of power and glory. So through the enormous trial that they went through, the disciples grow so much deeper in their knowledge of the Lord that night. And in fact, in a way that they never would have experienced had they not gotten into that boat. They thought they were alone in the darkness, didn't they? But they weren't. Jesus was fully aware of where he was sending them. He was fully aware of how they were struggling and he was fully aware of how and when he would come to their aid. Christian, hear that. Hear that in your trials, in your difficulties, even this week. His eye is upon you. Catch this now. He could have, Jesus could have stood on that mountain, seeing what they were going through, and from that mountain calmed the storm. He chose not to because he wanted his disciples to see him do it. He wanted to reveal himself in that particular way. So the timing was everything. Jesus was going to come. He'll never leave us, never forsake us. He was going to come. He was going to come to their aid, but timing was everything. And in the meantime, he was interceding with them before the Father in prayer. They were covered, completely covered. God's never in a hurry because he knows every factor in the circumstance. And sometimes he delays in coming to us so that we'll come to the end of ourselves and our own resources. Because we all do that, right? We, we run into a trial and we're like, I'll fix this. I've got this. I've got the resources. And then eventually you go, I don't have the resources. Oh, I should pray now. So sometimes God waits for us to get to that point. Sometimes he delays so that we will see his sovereign hand more clearly. But we can always trust his timing because he's always good. Now, we also have to be careful as we walk through this principle of God rescuing us that sometimes it's not his will to deliver us. Oh, man, we hate that. But this is where we have to shift from God. God's not a genie, right, who responds to our requests. He knows what's best for us. He's not a genie. So, yeah, he came to the aid of the 12 on the lake, but guess what? He didn't come to the aid of John the Baptist when Herod cut his head off. Man, see, that'll throw your whole theology for a loop, won't it? But you've got to understand all this. John the Baptist had completed his mission and his death was a reward. We just don't see life that way, do we? It was a reward for John the Baptist. Hmm. Even though, by the way, his death left behind mourners and grievers and, and it was hard for people, John received his reward. So the key to understanding this whole story in John 6 is the presence of Christ. I mean, if that's a big idea you can take home, the presence of Christ, he alone is the one who provides the peace and comfort that we long for in this world. He alone is the one who can lead us safely through the waters. But listen, even if we have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the most important thing is that the good shepherd is with us. Therefore, we fear no evil, right, because of his presence. And even the worst thing that the world can do to us, kill us, is still a reward. That's how the Christian processes this life. It's different than the world. So why do you follow Jesus? You're here this morning, you're like, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I want to be a part of the church. That's great. Why? What's your motivation? Is it so that you can harness his power for your ends? 
or simply because he's the sovereign Lord in both blessing and trial and therefore worthy of your worship? That's a key question for every one of us. Because again, that prosperity gospel thing can easily slip in if we don't keep pushing that out, right? It's for worship. And by the way, that's the note that I'll end on, worship. Because according to Matthew, when the disciples took Jesus aboard and the wind stopped, what did they do? They worshiped. In fact, this is the first time in any of the gospel accounts, the first time that they worship Jesus. Because they had seen what they had seen they worshiped him out in the middle of the lake. Can you imagine? It's, I mean, a worship service breaks out in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the night. They worshiped him. What a moment. Earlier in, in Matthew 8, they'd asked, well, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Here they answer their own question. Oh, now we know what kind of person. Now we know why the winds obey him. He's the son of God. This is the first time in the Gospels that they call him the son of God. And they worship May we worship him in the same way this morning and every day, every day, in our blessings and our trials, knowing that his eye is upon us, right? Not just with our lips, with our hearts and our lives. Do you trust him? Do you believe he's good? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the beautiful lesson of this story. God, we are, we are down here on the earth and we, we just don't see clearly. We just don't, Lord. And we wonder about these miracles and our vision is limited, man. We, it's dark and we see the water spraying up here and, and we don't know what to make of all these things, Lord, but you have told us what we need to know and that is you are always with us, that it's your presence that matters. And so, God, I pray for myself, for all of our, my brothers and sisters here this morning that we would... We would just trust your goodness, even when things are rough, even when people, people die, people we love pass away and we mourn and we grieve, Lord, that you are still good. And we long for that day, God, when we will see you face to face and we will understand more and we will receive our reward. May we continue to focus our minds on that beautiful news. And it's all, Lord, because of what you've done for us, because of the cross, because of the empty tomb. So we, we praise you this morning, Lord, and as we go back into singing now, God, may these truths sink deep into our souls. May we worship you with all of who we are, not just our lips. So be in our praise now. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen.